Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Edward starts us off from Connecticut. Hey, Edward, welcome into the show program. Hi, Noah. Hey, I've got a question about uh, how to monitor bandwidth that you're using while tethering. So it's a good idea. You should I'm do it. Is I've got a, yeah, totally, because it's not unlimited. Uh, so I've got an X220 running Ubuntu 18.04, and I connect it via USB to my phone. That's my tethering process. And most days I'll use like maybe 50 megabytes, uh, yeah, about 50 megabytes just because I'm just surfing or checking email. Sure. But every once in a while I have a day where it goes up to like 500 megabytes or Ooh. you know maybe even a little bit more, and I was wondering how can you tell which app is using all those all that data? Well, we'll start with this: um, the the go to quote unquote bandwidth monitor app. I'll just throw it out there because most people aren't interested in a per application specific thing. Most people just want to keep a general idea, and for that, I, I tend to use IF ifTop, uh, and that will you can actually run scripts and stuff that will. And so some of our servers we actually run scripts to have it send us, uh, you know, to keep track of of bandwidth monitoring and stuff like that. If you want to get into per application, there's really only one tool I'm familiar with, and that is NetHogs. And NetHogs will show you bandwidth consumption per application that's running on the system. Okay, will it show it to you in real time, or is it like only after the fact kind of thing? Um, you know, honestly, I, I, I'm i not one of those people that... Uh, that uh, that monitors per application. My understanding is NetHogs runs real time, and then the way that you would go and look back if you wanted to do that is you would spit the output out to a log, and then you could go back and, and review the log. So you'd have the choice of, of how you want to interpret that information. Okay, that sounds good to me. Thank you very much, Noah. Thank you very much for the call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Of course, you can email your questions to live at asknoahshow.com. We'd be happy to take your feedback or your questions that way. Lyle from Georgia. Welcome into the program, sir. <clears throat> Lyle, you're on the air. Good, good afternoon. Hey, great. This is Lyle in Georgia. I'm a ham radio operator as well, and I'm thinking it'd be cool to have a monitor with that showed a real-time weather radar with like a Raspberry Pi or something or a mini PC. And how would you go about doing that so that it updated and stuff like that? That is a and great question. Sure, that is a that is a great question. Um, the uh, there is a program called Radar Tools. And uh, I have played with it a little bit. Again, kind of like the last caller, it's not, those are not, uh, it's, it's not one of those things that, that I've really dug into. The, the reason I played with radar tools a little bit was back in college, I took a meteorology ca- class. And as part of a, a meteorology class, um, I started getting involved with Skywarn for ham radio uh, because I was a ham radio operator. And so going out and doing st- uh, storm chasing, I'm sorry, I meant storm spotting. You can't call it chasing, even though you chase after a storm. As part of that, 
I, I started getting into monitoring weather and kind of keeping track of that. And so I had played with uh, with radar tools, and I'm not, I'm not sure if that it looks like I'm just doing a, a bit of googling here on the air. It does appear that it is still a project that's out there. So I would check that out. I have no idea if they have an ARM uh, binary available that you would be able to run on a Raspberry Pi or not. Or something like it. Yeah, sure. I don't know of anything else out there. I've looked a couple. I've looked a, a couple of different times, you know. And uh, and ra- the the issue I had with Radar Tools back when I last used it was they hadn't updated it. I noticed that it still is not receiving a lot of updates, but the site is still up, and it appears that the code is still available, and so it likely still works. Well, there was. Uh, I'll give it a try, but you know, like the local TV stations sometimes had the radar. You know, I tell you, let me let me let me give you let me give you let me give you let me give you another idea. As a guy who works for another media entity, that we have live radar up. Do you know what we use? You would, you would think you you would think that we would have some sort of special system or some sort of software or whatever, but we don't. We actually use the National Weather Service. Uh, they have a live radar embed on their site, uh, and and that's what we have up on the screens. Uh, and like like I said, you you would think there would be some sort of more advanced or complicated or or better solution out there, but that's actually, I can tell you, working for a media entity that monitors uh, weather and gets paid to do it, uh, that's what we're using. That would look cool in your shack. One other thing that look cool, would look really cool in your shack is in GST they had this advertisement for this thing called Geocron, which is basically a flat world map with daylight and dark on it. It's $400. Ooh. I'm like, that's a lot of money for just daylight and dark in a world map. You know, it updates and it scrolls. I bet, I said, I, I bet there's some software that would do the same thing, but I haven't been able to find it. I, isn't Geocon available uh, for us as a software package for Linux? I think the, I think they run it on a Pi, don't they? I am I am 99 per, yeah. But it does 4K, so... I wouldn't mind buying the software, but I hate to spend four hundred dollars for a mini. I'll, know, I'll have a, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. It's k two gc dot net, and there is a gentleman that has uh, that has done this and has it working on a Raspberry Pi. And I'm I just briefly looking through this. It appears that he doesn't actually. It's not actually. Uh, it's not actually Geocron. It's it's a it's a it's a different software that he wrote to to be. Uh, to be compatible with it, but he has a, uh, a a guide on on how he got it working, and so I'll I'll link this for you in the chat room. But it it appears that yeah, you can get this running on a Raspberry Pi. Oh, I had to get in the chat room. Noah, you answered both of my questions. Hey, you know we try. We aim to please around here, and the advice is worth what you pay for. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hi. Thanks a lot, Noah. Bye-bye. Yeah, you bet. Have a great night. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. Email live at asknoahshow.com. Max joins us from Minnesota. Hey, Max, welcome into the program. Hey, um, so my question is, uh, I'm, I, I have a two, or I have a, I have a NAS and I have an NFS share on it that's okay. hosting my VM images and I have a second server that I just got. And before, I would add the NFS share, and then Invert Manager just add that uh, pool as a directory. Sure. But 
I'm doing that on both, and then when I want to migrate the VMs, it's not letting me. So I'm thinking I'm doing it wrong. It's not. It, it, well, it, it's may, it maybe not letting you because in order to migrate a VM, any storage resources have to be available for for both of those hypervisors. So if you have a resource that's available in one and not available on another, it's not going to let you migrate. If I understand what yeah, you're asking so me. There, so I, yeah. So I. So basically, I I have added that NFS share to both VM hosts and then added them both as a directory, but it's saying it doesn't have like NFS mounts. So oh. I'm wondering, do I have to add it through a uh, vert manager as a, and or as a net FS? Let, let, let me back up for a second. Cool. Uh, let, let me, let me back up for a second. Here, here's what, here's where I would yeah. start. Tr tr start, start, uh, let, let's start with this. What I would do, is on your virtual host on the machine add the nfs mount there as just as part of the as so it shows up as part of the file system on the host then inside of vert manager instead of i'm not sure exactly uh how you're going about trying to get that nfs share mounted inside of inside of vert manager but i wouldn't add it as an actual nfs mount inside of vert manager what i would do is uh, go under trying to think off the top of my head inside of virtual manager you click on the on the actual host and uh and and then go to uh, go up to the edit and under the storage tab add a add a storage pool and just choose instead of i assume that's where you're choosing uh like netfs or or uh, or uh, excuse me um would you say you were using NFS? Uh, just choose file file system directory. Just uh, and then choose where that NFS mount is on the file system. And then that way, what'll happen is you will let um, you'll let FSTAB on the host system deal with connecting and mounting the file system. And all libvirt D has to worry about then is 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 mapping that directory to your host. So as far as your guest is going to, or excuse me, your guest. So as far as your guest is going to see, it's just another folder on the on the system. And then I would be able, and then if I did that on two VM hosts, I would be able to migrate the guests between those two. Yes. Let me uh, let me do okay. this. Let me let me let me check something uh, real quick. Hey, uh, Brandon, in the mumble room, are you uh, are you uh, are you next to your computer? And is this advice sound? Yeah. Um, uh, if you're starting to do something more complex, like when you want uh, migration. Um, I would uh, start looking towards using something more like a over or a Proxmox. Because um, if you want to do live migration, uh, configuring that in libvirt-d is not exactly a, trivial uh, for mere mortals. So Sure, sure. Thank you very much for, uh, for chiming in. I appreciate it. Brandon is our, uh, is our uh, community resident expert when it comes to virtualizations. I lean on him... Uh, yeah. When when need be, uh, does that answer your question, Max? Yeah that that uh, that works that works great. Thank you. Give that a shot. I think that will get you to where you need to be. Uh, that is the way that I run my virtual host. I I, I map my NFS shares. All of my storage is obviously being done on uh, on FreeNAS, and so the way that I'm mapping that is using NFS, and I'm doing that at the file system level, and not had any issues. But then again, I'm not live migrating from one host to another, so something to consider. One eight fifty five four fifty no. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. That is how you join the program and add your voice to the conversation. 
Michael Tunnell, he is the owner and creator of Tux Digital. It is a Linux-based broadcasting network where he creates Linux and open source content. I've had the pleasure of working for Michael, or with Michael, rather, for years. Now I'm working with Michael on a new project called Destination Linux, a podcast that he has, uh, has been a part of for a number of years and has kind of taken the reins to turn into a newer, better, more updated product. It is the best Linux video podcast on the market today. And he joins us on the program. Hey, Michael, welcome into the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for taking the time to be here. So um, I guess let's start with this. What was the reason for the creation of Tux Digital? Well, I just wanted to basically take the knowledge that I've gathered over the years uh, for Linux and open source and share it with people. So that's pretty much the the, the reason I started it. And I, I've always been interested in podcasting and creating media content. So I just kind of on, on a whim decided to start doing it and then it turned into a channel and multiple podcasts and uh, guest hosting on various other podcasts and all kinds of things. So it's turned out to be an interesting uh, experience. One of the things I think everybody that does independent content does does at least one thing very, very well and, and then other things well too, but they always have one thing that I think they just own over everybody else. And I think the thing that you have that no other independent content creator out there has. Actually, that no other content creator out there has. I'll go as far as to say that. You have a deep connection to the community. I never ever hear you say, I heard or I saw or I read. It's always, I was talking to, I was communicating with. We were doing a show just last week. We were recording uh, Destination Linux on Sunday. And we were about to cover a story that was very prominent in the news. And we were a little bit late because you were communicating directly with the folks trying to get up-to-date information. And I think right. people don't really understand that uh, uh, and, and the benefit to your listening audience, and I guess viewing audience in your case, they don't understand the benefit to your viewing audience of you having that connection. So I just want to publicly thank you for continuing to do that work because it requires an awful lot of time on your part and an awful lot of investment in your part to build and maintain those relationships. Oh yeah, I, I don't even think about that in that sense because I've been uh, involved in the community for uh, almost two decades now. Uh, I don't really exactly know when I started, but it was close to that. So I started when I was a teenager, and I just started talking to people regardless of what like project they're on. Even if it was something I didn't use, I still wanted to get in t uh, get in touch with them, learn like what they do on the project and that kind of thing. So I. I, over the years, developed a, a connection with a ton of different people. So like you were saying with the Destination Linux topic, um, I just wanted to talk to one of the developers of the project just to make sure that the things we were going to talk about in the show were up to date enough where, you know, we would be as, I guess, breaking news, I guess, in a, in a sense, because it would like we'd have like the, uh, like, you know, straight to the source type of pr approach. And uh, I, I, would, I never think about it as, as like a, as that being a benefit to it, it's just uh, it totally is. But I never thought about it until you mentioned it. So it's just second great. nature to you. That <laughs> kind of is. I yeah. mean, yeah, creating content is a lot more work than a lot of people uh, give it credit for. What are some of the challenges that you initially faced when you were getting Tux Digital off the ground? Well, I mean, there's a there's so many challenges for content creation, and the, I guess the biggest thing is trying to balance you know work time and also doing work on the 
the, the podcast itself as well because and a lot of people don't think about the fact that some people would associate doing a podcast is and you just you just start talking on a microphone and then there you're done but there's so much work that goes into it before and after because a lot of people would also know about the editing aspect of it too but i would say that the research that i do on my shows are more more work in the research side than there is on any other part of it actually you could probably say that i do more research com more combined with everything else so if you were to, if, if i were to spend sorry about hours i spent on doing the podcast i think each podcast is probably about 10 to 15 hours of work each each week um and but doing two podcasts adds a a ton of stuff um so in a way it's kind of like a like having multiple jobs and to be able to do this. So I guess the, the time barrier is the biggest issue because I don't want to just make a product and just be, you know, throw it out there and say, that's good enough. I want it to be where something that I would want to listen to and to do that requires a lot of work on my part. I was in an airport. I was getting ready to board a plane. I had just gotten done with a Linux conference and uh, did not get a lot of sleep that weekend. And so I wasn't in the best of moods and I was sitting in the airport terminal and a gentleman approached me and said, Hey, are you Noah? Hey, good to meet you. Sat down and started chatting with him. And the first thing he said to me, which I believe to this day he meant as a compliment, was, man, I just really wish I could do what you do. I, I really wish I could do an hour a show a week, and, and I wish that was my job. And I, <laughs> and I just kind of I just kind of thought to myself, I thought, yeah, you know what? I wish that was my job, too. I wish I could work for an hour a week, too. <laughs> it takes, exactly. for every hour that you hear on the air, just know that that independent content creator is probably spending three to five hours researching, another two to three hours producing after the fact, and then another, I don't know, probably twice all of that time, maybe six to 12 hours promoting uh, their show. So, you know, in, in a given week, I'll probably put 20 to 30 hours into a, you know, a 50 minute show. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's like I, you can do depending on how much you do. Like, for example, my uh, this week in Linux is a news podcast and I put uh, like anywhere between 15 to 20 topics on, on the show. And when you when I actually do the show, it totally comes like the, the final product is about 40 to an hour long, 40 minutes to an hour. And the amount of time I spend on each topic on the show is anywhere between two to five minutes or, you know, sometimes it's more. But that's the average. And you look at that, it doesn't seem like a lot of work. But the actual, just to even get all the stuff uh, ready to do the show is like so many hours. I can't even, I can't even imagine. Like I have, I've gone through it multiple times to streamline my process and to improve things. And it still takes a ton of time. So we're looking at like at least four or five hours just to get ready to start recording. And then you got to look at the, the time, how long it takes to do the recording plus the actual like editing of the podcast and you know there's there's ways to streamline stuff here and there but overall it's still going to take a minimum of 10 hours and the most part the, the more the commonly it's gonna be like up to 20 hours because of how much work you have to put into a podcast and then when you start doing multiple podcasts uh, you know you're adding a ton of work to yourself tell me about the your involvement with destination linux how did that get started tell me the story um well Actually, it's kind of interesting because it was just, um, it was accidental, really. I was, um, like, Rocco, or Big Daddy Linux, started uh, Destination Linux with him and Rob. And they they started the podcast, and I was on, I was a guest, um, like, interviewed on, like, episode 18 or 17 or something like that. I think it was 18. And they just talked, they, we just talked about my journey into Linux and all that stuff. But around 
six months later, um, there was uh, an, uh, Rob, well, actually, Rob decided to leave about a couple months after that, and uh, Rocco was looking for a new host, and he, then he added Ryan to the new hosting, which made uh, the show much more, um, much different and more dynamic and stuff um, in that sense. And then later on, they wanted to, to add some more hosts to the show. And then one day, they just, uh, I, I was talking to Rocco and Ryan uh, occasionally here and there before becoming a part of the show. And then one day, they asked me to guest host. And then they asked me to guest host the next week. And then they asked me to just stay, keep hosting. And I was like, you know what? Sure, why not? Let's do it. Um, and then later on, uh, probably about 30 episodes after that, something like that, somewhere around there, uh, Rocco decided to leave. And in doing so, it he was doing the editing for the show. So he was doing all the editing, which meant that for the first 30 episodes of me on it, I didn't have to put as much you know effort into it. And when he did when he did decide to leave it turned it made it a situation where we didn't have an editor and so i took the reins for the editing so um at already spending 10 to 20 hours uh, a week on one podcast i was like well let's just add another 10 to 20 hours on it and do a completely new podcast so there's undoubtedly some people that are listening to this and they're going this is Noah's idea of a podcast episode is they're just going to sit there and brag on themselves for all the hard work they do for Linux. I, pr <laughs> I promise you, I promise you, we're about to bring this home. Thank you for letting me tread on your attention span, listener. I appreciate it. Michael, tell me about your extensive, exclusive Linux workflow because you have actually developed... Well, let's start with this. Before we get to the stuff that you've developed, tell me about the the tools that existed, the open source tools that existed that allowed you to begin editing and producing shows in Linux. Well, the, the tools that I used for like 99% of the work I do involves uh, Kden Live for the editing, OBS for the recording and capture of the screen, and uh, some editing in Audacity for the audio uh, correction stuff. But there's also other tools that allow me to do uh, other things like uh, MKV Merge is a really, really, uh, or MKV Tool Nix is the name of the main package. But MKV Merge is what I use. And uh, these, per these, so these types of software is what I use to produce the show, but I also use other things to like keep track of the things that I need to do. Like uh, Joplin Notes is what I use to keep track of what like to do the, the tasks list I need to do for each show. Um, but it there's, I think overall, Caden Live and OBS are by far the most important pieces of the show. And without having both of those, I wouldn't be able to do the show. I want to talk a little bit, not that it was originally on my talking point list, but I'm going to bring it up anyway because it was kind of exciting to me. I want to talk a little bit about Cody. This is the first week that we've tried using Cody. Yeah. Not, and when I say Cody, I'm not talking about the TV app. I'm talking about a different kind of Cody, C-O-D-I. Uh, and, and, and essentially what it is, is would it be an accurate summation to say it's essentially a web version of Sublime Text? In a way, yes. But the, the reason why it's, uh, it's awesome, it's, it's C-O-D-I-M-D. Uh, Cody MD, meaning MD for Markdown. It is an, a text-based, web, web-based editor. Uh, but what's really cool about it is that not only does it have sublime uh, shortcuts and features, it also has collaborative uh, documentation editing. So you are able to do the source code together. And I've actually been testing it for a very long time. I've been using it to do This Week in Linux for um, many, many months. And uh, occasionally... Ryan or Do, uh, Das Geek or Ryan from Destination Linux would help me do the show and we would use uh, something like Code EMD to do it. So there's two different versions. There's a service called HackMD 
and then there's a, a self-hosted version called CodyMD. So if you didn't want to host it yourself, you could use HackMD. Whether if you do want to host it yourself, use CodyMD. And um, they're really, they're both great. And they both do a majority of the same things. But CodyMD has a lot of custom, like some more customization options. And you can do like, you can make it look different as in it has like a dark mode, whereas the regular one doesn't. But it is such a smooth experience that I've never had it like lose uh, sync with the other person working on it. Um, it's the, the fact that it has sublime text um, sh shortcut schemes is really cool. And for those who like Vim, you can switch the shortcut keys to Vim keys and it will work. You know, you can, one person can use sublime keys, the other person can use Vim keys and they would still all work together. It's really good. That's awesome. And I thoroughly enjoyed this experience. In fact, I got to a point where I'm going to switch all of the Asnoa stuff over to Cody MD because I just like it. One of the things I've absolutely hated about working with any other uh, podcast system, honestly, is I just hate Google Docs. I really, really dislike the yeah. tool. And that's not a, oh, look at me. I have my nose in the air because I'm so high and mighty and I just don't let Google infringe on my privacy. It, it's not even any <laughs> of that. I, it's just a terrible tool. It sucks. Yeah. Uh, I just, just And also, if you use a Firefox, it's like they make it the most painful thing possible. I because do. You're not allowed to copy and paste for some reason. You have to understand, I only have 32 gigs of RAM. I can't run Chrome. So you, <laughs> that's a fair point. So, uh, so there's all of these open source tools that are out there, and of course, they allowed you to uh, to get the job done and be able to produce videos and uh, and audio content uh, daily on mm -hmm. Linux. But then you actually went out on your own, and this is why I wanted to bring you on the program and pick your brain because I think it's a job really well done, and I think it's very valuable to the next up and coming podcaster that wants to that wants to produce content. You have written some custom scripts that allow yeah. you to do some really, really innovative and creative things as far as automatically cutting up video and editing and producing content. Tell me about that. Yeah, I've done multiple different um, scripts for different the, each each podcast that, I, that I, I edit because Destination Linux and This Week in Linux are recorded in very different methods, uh, mainly because there's on This Week in Linux, it's just myself, so I can control it to uh, the, like pinpoint accuracy of when I start topics and when I end them, etc., Whereas Destination Linux has four hosts, so it's a little bit more of a uh, you know a juggling effect to do that. So I had to, I have to do a different technique to streamline the podcast. But both of them I wanted to is streamline as much as possible. So well to, to eliminate at least a couple hours off of the editing work, and I was able to do that for with a variety of different methods. So there's a couple ways that I did it with OBS. There's ways that I did it with Caden Live, and there's also some uh, generator tools that I built to streamline some stuff. So uh, first off, uh, with OBS, the the best thing about OBS is that you can do so much with it. You can do um, like a ridiculous amount of scenes and a, or many sources. Like uh, I've joked on the past on Destination Linux about this, where I have uh, on average about 30 to 40 scenes per podcast in OBS. I still, I I've about, said it on Destination Linux, I will say it on this show, I still claim that that is ridiculous and that is unneeded <laughs> and that is, you need help. Okay, that's fair, but I I, I think I need it, so therefore I have them. That, um, that, that nothing changes on Destination, it's the same exact shot, the whole show essentially. Well, that's not true because the, the the each episode the host order changes, and I need to I need to cut the host cameras out, and also unfortunately 
uh, we use Zoom, but I think Zoom is great, but there's this one problem with Zoom is that you can't individually cut out each person. So I can't move anything around unless I were to, you know, individually cut the order. So it, it just, I have to do extra scenes because of that. And also there are things that I do that are not important at all in your right, but I just, I just, does it, it bothers me. So like this, you know, like every once in a while on Zoom, there's this thing that says, uh, has a green, um, like border around the person talking and that bothers me. So I put the effort in to cut out each camera to get rid of that border and then resize it. So it fits right on the screen. So you're right. That's totally a waste of time, but well, not necessarily a waste of time because I don't like the border and it just looks bad. Right. So it made the show look better by doing it. But yeah, I could, I could understand why people would just say that's you 30 know, scenes are absurd. Right. Right. So, so but on the, this week in Linux, there's, I think there's probably 50, that's fair. I, yeah, I'm, this week in Linux is obvious. That's that's a totally different. Uh, that's a different animal, and so I can kind of understand that a little bit more than I understand Destination Linux. But so you, <laughs> so one of the things going back to OBS, one of the things that you've done is you've taught you actually you worked with some developers to to mm -hmm. customize an extension to work on Linux so that you can mark in a file where an event happens. Oh yeah. So that's this. This is a plugin for OBS called InfoWriter. And it's awesome. It is, it's very powerful. It allows you to do um, control of like when you change things. So for example, if you have a bunch of scenes like I do, and you have a bunch of scenes on um, like for different topics like I do, you could switch to the topic. And then in a file, like a text file, it will write the name of the scene you switched to and when you did it in the recording. So it doesn't do it like based on timestamp of like of your actual time. It does it based on how long you've been streaming or how long you've been recording. So, and if you are doing both, it will do the recording by default or actually whichever one you pick first, but typically, or whichever one is second is the one that it will automatically go to, but typically recording is the one it uses. So in the biz, and, we call that an edit cut sheet and it's being generated for you automatically. And it's not something that you have to do by hand. So to give you, a, to give everybody a little bit of perspective, everybody knows who Rakai is, or at least you should. He edited the show for years. Uh, and, and the way that Rakai dealt with an editing cut sheet was, he watched the episode and then he would sit there with a computer and put out pull out the times that he wanted that that specific events occurred and then he would use that editing cut sheet to make his final edit and and in the case of some of the other stuff where Kai was doing submit uh, reports to to sponsors and stuff like that and and so you have automated that process because you don't have a Rikai. Yes, exactly. I don't I don't have a Rikai, so I have to do it myself and the reason that this this plugin is so great is because it does it on the fly in real time. So I have a special keyboard that I set up that has specific keys to do certain things. And one of the things it does is that it will write to the file in different, like different little comments. So I have five, I have five comments that I send to the file and whenever I need to like start a topic or end a topic, uh, that that's what, that's what I can do. That's absolutely awesome. And I, I, again, a huge thank you to, for putting the work in and building the relationship, because I think again, we'll, what pe what people gloss over is the fact that you've worked with these developers to make this work on Linux. I happen to know for a fact that that particular extension only worked on Windows. And then you worked with the community and the developers to bring it over to Linux. That is correct. The uh, Unfortunately, the, 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 the guy who made, made it, it did want to make it work for Linux, but he didn't know how to. So I did some testing to figure out how the, like what the path needs to be and everything and how to like, like lay it out in OBS. And when I explained it to him how to do it, he decided to implement it into the actual uh, feature and then released a new version of it so that you could Im install it into OBS for Linux. So 
like uh, by default i was like i was like when i first saw it i was like this is going to be amazing then it didn't work <laughs> so i was like okay well now i'm gonna make it work because i have to have this that's awesome yeah. now after you get done with obs so you have your cut sheet you obviously have the video it's dealing all of the camera switching it's dealing with all of the overlays and graphics in fact if you're not familiar if you're if you're new to the show obs is what we're using to generate the video content of the show and is what gets posted to youtube.com slash ask noah show uh and it's capturing the chat and doing all of those overlays a huge thanks to michael and visuex for designing all of the graphics for us after that, you actually have some custom scripts that are going through and essentially doing some rudimentary editing for you. Yes, uh, this solves a lot of time. Like the, what I was typically doing was um, finding out what I um, when I, I edit like each topic and find out where they are in the thing to do the cut sheet, and then that would take forever. But as soon as I created the the found the plugin and was created making it work for Linux, I was like, well, how far can I take this automation? If I can do it real time, can I do other things and make it a lot easier? So what I did was take the timestamps that's created in that file. And then I read it, made a script that was able to um, automatically, depending on which one I'm doing, like Destination Linux and This Week in Linux do it in a different way. But the, the This Week in Linux, the way I structure it is that I have so much control, I can make sure that I have a couple seconds on the front and back of each topic. And then that goes into the file, the text file. And then I take the timestamps from the text file and then put it in this script that I made. And it generates an auto-cutting system where it will take the, the beginning and end uh, segment and then cut individual files for each topic automatically, regardless of how big the actual main file is. Typically, it's like three hours long because I do the show on like streaming live. And then eat, between each topic, I also have a conversation with a chat room and stuff. So there's like a lot of stuff going on in this show or on the stream. So I needed to make sure that I was able to cut it. And when I did it manually, that took forever. It was like 35, 45 minutes just to cut those parts out. And now it takes with the script about five to 10 seconds. Are these tools and custom scripts available to everybody? Or is this, is this a workflow that is a secret sauce of Touch Digital? Uh, it's currently secret sauce because it's just a lot to customize because I, I built it to that use my path system and to use the my, the method that I use. So you, you would have to have every every piece. And right now, I don't think it's ready to produce to like provide it publicly because it's, it requires it would require me to customize it. So it'd be more, um, you know, accessible to everybody else to to implement it in ways that they would be doing a different cast because they'd have to in order right now, they'd have to use build the, this, their podcast on, on OBS in the same way that I did, plus the, having the script stuff. But there are things that I will be providing uh, in the future. And some of these, if not all of these, will be provided because there's, you know, I like, I like doing that. But uh, I want to make sure that they, when, they, when I do release them, they're not just full with errors that are specific to me that people can't use, you know. What does the future of Tux Digital look like? Obviously, if these tools become available or if you can make these tools available, then people can follow you on Tux Digital and, and find that information. But where do you hope to be one year from now or five years from now? Well, I mean, this is kind of a ridiculous uh, statement, I guess, but I want to be the place for, um, you know, Linux content or open source content, um, you know, provide and also be like, a place where people can go to get help creating their own content. Maybe even um, there's a, an idea that I had that um, 
I plan to at least sometime soon uh, create a structure where people can use my tools and my setup to create their own content and I'll help them uh, in a variety of different ways, uh, kind of like a network of sorts. Um, but overall, my goal is to be a like one of the main locations for just helping out Linux in general. One of the, um, so I, I don't know if it's, you know, how practical that is, but that's, that would be the goal. One of the things I want to point out, because I think it was, I, I guess it wasn't on this show. I was the interview, which by the way, you should check out if you haven't, if you don't usually follow destination Linux, but you have an interest in the content that, that I make, maybe you're a, maybe you're a, maybe you're, you feel a certain allegiance to have a monogamous relation, uh, podcast relationship with just me. Uh, the, the last episode we did of destination Linux, we are doing a mini series of interviews of hosts. And the last episode that we did is, was of me. And, I talked a little bit about my Linux journey and about how I arrived at my Linux destination. And um, one of the things that I think that episode exemplifies, we talked about it a little bit there, and I'll, I can touch on it a little bit here. The listeners of this show are listening and saying, hey, a lot of what Michael Tunnell at Tux Digital is doing sounds a lot like what Noah Chalaya is doing with the Ask Noah show and the affiliated content. Why is it that I'm having you on and why are we having this conversation and why is Tux Digital and Michael Tunnell so supportive of Noah Chalaya and, and Ask Noah? And I think the answer to that, and I hope this can be an example for others out there, we are both community members first and independent content creators second. And so if there's an opportunity for me to help you or an opportunity for you to help me, that the, the fact that we are we are making similar content and doing similar things and have similar goals and ambitions has never, ever stopped us from working together. In fact, I would argue it makes both of our brands, if you want to call it that, stronger. Yeah, I mean, in, in ways it actually pulls us together because if we weren't willing to um, collaborate, then we wouldn't be doing Destination Linux together. Exactly. So, like that changed the whole dynamic of, of, of like, like I want to be the, like providing a huge uh, mountain of content for people and you want to do the same thing. But there's the, the whole aspect of, you know, open source in general is the collaboration and community parts. So like, you know, the whole, the phrase, uh, the tide raises all boats yep. is that kind Rising of structure. Tide. Yeah, exactly. So I want to, you know, help everybody. I want my content to be, you know, valuable to people. But I also want to make because I'm not going to be the best expert on every topic. Like, for example, you've done, you know, tech support and uh, IT uh, services for so many years where I haven't done that in like 15 years. So my experience is much, much, much lower than yours. So when we can do stuff together to, you know, provide our best, um, you know, our expertise for certain certain topics, that helps everyone. Has dual booting allowed you to succeed oh where other- Oh my goodness, are you, st are you doing that here too? <laughs> wow. The chat okay. room, the chat room has prompted me to bring up filthy dual booting. So just to be clear, Michael <laughs> is not a dual booter. He doesn't do that. But there is a running joke. Ah, chat room is freaking out. <laughs> there is a running joke on Destination Linux that because uh, Michael uses a VM like pretty much every other Linux user out there does to run some you know trivial Windows software every once in a while, all of a sudden that makes him a filthy dual booter. So I just wanted to find out if you felt that led to your success or did not lead no, to your success. No, I think I think that hinders it for sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, sounds good. Michael okay. Tanell, uh, you can find him at tuxdigital.com. Absolutely fantastic content. If you want a weekly news show, check out This Week in Linux. Of course, you can catch Michael and I sometime throughout the week, depending on when Michael's tools decide to run and the, the episode gets right. released at Destination Linux. Oh, actually, I'm, I'm editing the show right now for Destination Linux, so it's going to be on time this week. Oh, my gosh. And so the usual release day is Wednesday? Yes, the usually the usually is Wednesday, Wednesday morning or so. I actually built a script like I, we've talked about this previously, but on my automation tools, I recently built a script specifically for Destination Linux that I haven't told you about, and I will be releasing that soon because of how it's just it can be used for anybody. What basically it does is the same info writer time uh, timestamp stuff, except it takes the uh, the timestamps and then converts them into Caden Live guides. So that I don't actually, it doesn't, it's because there's certain times where I can't edit everything automatically or like for Destination Linux because it's, it's so many different people talking on it. It takes the thing and it automatically adds the guide points where it needs to be edited for like the cut sheet directly in the editor. So when I actually go to edit, they're already there waiting for me to do it. That's outstanding. And you said that will be released? Yes, that will be released because that one doesn't require that doesn't have any specific paths because that one is um, it doesn't require like my s structure system. As long as you want the edit points, it'll be able to do it. And uh, the next version of Caden Live is adding some more features of being able to like cr create priority for the guides. And when that releases, I'll be implementing that so you can actually control like what type of edit in the guides they're going to be. Michael Tunnell is his name. TuxDigital.com is the website on Twitter, at Michael Tunnell. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the program and sharing your workflow with us and your contributions to the open source community. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Oh, yeah. Thank you so, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it, brother. 701, or, <laughs> wrong show. 1-855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at AskNoahShow.com. We're late to the Linux Newswire newsroom with Eric, the IT guy. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT Guy. Hey, Noah. Happy to be with you again. And here are your Linux and open source headlines. First up today, a chilling reminder to always be patching your systems. The Apache HTTP web server has been targeted in the past few weeks with what's been coined the Carpe Diem vulnerability. This vulnerability has been found, reported, and patched in version 2.4.39. Apache is responsible for providing web content for over 2 million sites at last poll, most of which are publicly accessible. The first vulnerability allows root access for any user allowed to write a script, be it PHP or CGI, for example. This vulnerability targets the log rotate process via an out-of-bounds array leading to an arbitrary function call. It has been dubbed Carpe Diem because it is CVE 2019-0211 Apache Root Privilege Escalation, or Carpe, and Diem because it is triggered once a day. The other vulnerabilities that were patched include fixing a race condition, allowing users to gain access to the Apache process in multi-threaded servers, and finally, Apache fixed a bug in Mod SSL, which allowed malicious users to bypass SSL access controls. BleepingComputer.com has released an article this week exposing a disturbing trend in most of the popular browsers, the disabling of click tracking prevention. Many sites and providers today use HTML auditing to track users' click activity. This is done by adding a second call within any URL. For instance, if you navigate to mysite.com, the URL will direct the browser to that website. However, if hyperlink auditing is enabled, 
That link will also send a ping to a second URL that tracks activity. To date, most major browsers had an option to disable this ability. Several more privacy-focused browsers even had this behavior disabled by default. However, recent investigations have shown that Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, and Apple's Safari browsers in the next versions will no longer allow users to disable this behavior at all. This presents a huge concern for those privacy-minded users. There is some reassurance, however, as Mozilla's Firefox and the Brave browser will continue to ship this behavior as disabled by default. While some companies are working hard to violate the integrity of their user, users' privacy, there is some great news out this week for mobile devices. UbiPorts has announced the formation of the UbiPorts Foundation. UbiPorts is a host project for Ubuntu Touch. In April of 2017, Canonical announced the cancellation of Unity 8, which promised to bring convergence between desktop and mobile closer to reality. The community very quickly stepped in and picked up the work. Since that time, great progress has been made in developing a viable alternative ROM not dependent upon any of the major tech companies. Their devices include the Nexus 5, OnePlus One, and, many, and support for many others. Their goals have been to defend the open source community, its users, and interests by developing the, quote, perfect personal phone operating system. The UbiPorts Foundation will help further these efforts by creating legal, infrastructure, and funding sources not previously available. This is a big win for the mobile community who value security and privacy. You can go try out Ubuntu Touch today from their website, ubiports.com. In another win for mobile devices, Purism has announced that private internet access is the very first OAM partner. PIA is a privacy-committed VPN provider with a proven track record of not keeping any logs or traffic routed through its platform. Purism, known for its security-minded laptops and the upcoming Librem 5 phone, provides toggle switches for radios and cameras on its devices. Now, with a partnership with PIA, we'll be offering bundled products with privacy at its core. The VPN will be offered on PureOS out of the box alongside other tools like the Nitro Key developed Librem Key, Nextcloud, Matrix, and GPG signed TPM integration called Heads. Both CEOs announced great excitement to be working with companies that value open source, privacy, and the community in an age that seems to take privacy more and more for granted. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric, the IT guy. Now, Noah, back to you. Thank you, Eric. Eric joins us every week to give us a roundup of your local, uh, your Linux news headlines, and we're happy to have him soon. This uh, That will be an independent production. It will be available on your uh, smart device of sorts, and you'll be able to get a daily brief. So that keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming soon. Seuss has announced that they will soon be the largest independent Linux company. There's just one problem. They will not be the largest, and they won't necessarily be independent. So here's everything about the way this story is being reported. It has been frustrating to me because the presupposition here, before you can get to any of the remaining facts, some of which are, are factually incorrect, but the assumption here is that Red Hat is somehow less valuable because they were purchased by IBM. And the truth is that couldn't be further that couldn't be further from reality. This is a company that does not own any intellectual property. IBM did not purchase a $34 billion company. They essentially, they purchased a $34 billion open source community. They purchased a community because they, because they cared about the internal uh, networking structure and the internal dynamics that existed in Red Hat and allowed them to grow to a company that is worth $34 billion. They don't own any intellectual rights. So I think there is a disconnect right off the bat comparing uh, with, with the, the, the comparison here. 
But the speculation that I've seen from every community and not just not just any one community, but in various different places is meh, big deal. They're going to get sold again because it seems like every time you turn around, Seuss is getting sold. And uh, and 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 so I guess this entire story and this entire narrative has been fairly frustrating to me this week. Um, they're not truly an independent company that Microfocus sold to uh, EQT, which is a which is a an agri an investment aggregator of sorts. Uh, and so they still have a backing as Red Hat has a backing. But there there is the there is this imp, imp, uh, this implication or that Red Hat is going to be unduly influenced by IBM, that IBM is going to want to change something about Red Hat's culture. And I don't understand how we arrive at that conclusion because the only thing IBM purchased was culture. Why would IBM want to change it? If anything, you want the people of Red Hat and the culture of Red Hat to begin to influence those that work at IBM, don't you? If you want to see more companies like Red Hat, and if you want to see more companies act like Red Hat, the answer is not to remove Red Hat from other companies. The answer is to get Red Hat involved in more companies like IBM. So I, th I think that's what, right off the bat what I have a problem with. And then, like I said, they're not even truly technically independent. And if we make it five years or more, then we can go back and review and say, okay, Seuss has has made it or you know maybe even longer than that okay Seuss has has made it and 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 they they have accomplished something here um because where they're finally starting to build something Das Geek in the chat room says Seuss community will be sending Colonel Linux some colorful emails on this one I'm sure they will here's the thing I've gotten colorful emails because I am not a fan of Yast I am not a fan of ButterFS and I am a fan of OpenSUSE and Seuss the company as it exists to further the Linux ecosystem because, and we had this discussion a little bit on Destination Linux, anytime one member of the community succeeds, the entire community succeeds, right? And we just talked about that with Michael Tunnell. But I, 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 I'm not sure I understand the customer base of Seuss. And maybe that's, my, maybe that's on me. That's probably my problem, is I, don't, I struggle to understand the market for Seuss. Is there, is there somebody out there that needs to use Seuss that, Red Hat or Ubuntu would not be a better fit or a fit at all. And maybe that person is out there, but for me, they always seem like Red Hat Mini. It always kind of feels like a Red Hat knockoff. And I, I apologize to anybody from SUSE or OpenSUSE if that comes off offensive or, or, um, or unkind. But that's, from my perception, that's, that's, how, that's what I see as the market reality. And so when I see all of these articles kind of chastising Red Hat for being purchased by IBM, which has given them a huge advantage because now they have a massive checkbook behind them. They are they continue to be the largest open source company. They are the largest open source software acquisition in history. And somehow that's a bad thing that an open source company has risen in prominence, has risen in pocketbook, and has risen in influence. And somehow as an open source advocate, I'm supposed to be upset about that. And I don't understand that attitude. And so... I guess I push back on it a little bit, but that happened. And so be aware of it and we'll continue to watch it. And we'll continue to offer analysis and uh, I'll probably continue to get myself in trouble behind a microphone. 
The UbiPorts Foundation is ready for launch. April 5th of 2017, the community took full responsibility for the development and maintenance of the Ubuntu Touch mobile operating system. Now, if you're not familiar with Ubuntu Touch, it is an alternative to Android or iOS that you can install on a phone and run Linux and a Linux distribution on your phone. UbiPorts activities have continued to grow the community, and they're proud to announce that they have been granted the status of an official foundation from the authorities in Berlin. They, they've they been working on this since 2017. And uh, I like UbiPorts. I, we have had, and listen, we've had UbiPorts on this show many, many times. And I think they're an almost perfect operating system. I think there are just a couple little things that, uh, that need some polish and need to be updated. And then, of course, there's the issue of the app infrastructure. But what I see or what I foresee happening at some point is in the same way that Snap Packages universally packaged the uh, the uh, Linux applications, I think there's a very real possibility that we're going to reach a point where mobile applications become containerized more than they are, more so than they already are, because in some ways uh, there is some container technology going on, but more so than they already are. And that may provide an opportunity for other alternative operating systems to pop up and be able to be utilized. Uh, as members of the board of directors, Jan Sprints and uh, is it Ewald Perry took upon themselves the task of preparing the required documents for the foundation structure. They started laying out the usage of brands and names and logos and distinctive marks and worked with lawyers to get all of that done. One of the interesting things that, again, I think speaks to the collaborative effort of the open source community is the Document Foundation stepped up. And now uh, you may know the Document Foundation as the folks that brought you LibreOffice. They were more than willing to help when asked and were able to provide some assistance to the UbiPorts team. They also took on the responsibility for arranging the financial structure. They were meeting with banks and government organizations and foundations and accountants. It is a it is a multi-tier approach that took years to complete, but the foundation that they have that they have created now provides uh, the project benefits such as more structure and new funding and merchandising opportunities. This is a big step for the UbiPorts project. It allows the formal creation of an entity. It allows them to do things like enter into agreements, take donations, accept payments. Uh, make payments, make hires. And this is what's great about the open source community. Canonical developed an open source product and decided that they wanted to move on to bigger and better things. A few people in the community looked up and said, we think that's a valuable project. We would like to pick that up, pick up the torch and carry it forward. And nothing stopped them. In fact, they've gotten a lot of support from those that were previously supporting what was Ubuntu Touch. And they continue to move the needle forward. Now, is it a perfect operating system? No. Is it a drop-in replacement for Android? And so your your choices are iOS, Android, or UbiPorts? No. It requires a certain level of geek. And it requires a certain level of uh, of managing your expectations. But if you're willing to do that, and the team is very upfront and honest about that. We've had Dalton Durst on the program. They're very open and honest about what their goals are, what their expectations are, and what the user expectation should be. And so we wish them all the best. Again, phone lines are open 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You can add your voice to the conversation. Just a couple of minutes left in the program. I want to get to an email. This is less of a question, more of an open source conversation starter related to digital notebooks. I'm a huge OneNote user, and I've been using it for about 10 years. As you can imagine, I have quite a bit of information that I've collected. 
A little more than a year ago, I switched over to Debian for a primary operating system, and it's been great with the exception of being forced to either access OneNote online or use a VM remote desktop. I also attempted to use Wine with no success. None of these are ideal. Ideal to add insult to injury, Microsoft has dropped the desktop edition of OneNote from Office 2019, fo focusing OneNote development under the universal app that only works on Windows 10. I have evaluated a number of alternative open source notebook apps, but there is no direct match. Cherry Tree is a container minus the accessibility and has been some recent conversations about converting OneNote to Cherry Tree. Zim is another processing option, essentially a local wiki with a GUI editor. Neither implement handwriting, but Journal XX looks to be a great tool for handwritten notes, sketches, and PDF editing. I'm generalizing here, but I think OneNote gets heavily used by those in tech and academia where Microsoft runs the show and is unfamiliar to those in open source realm. To use a food analogy, Windows folks often look for bread in the bakery of the supermarket, where open source folks don't mind baking their own from scratch. Do you have any thoughts, comments, or insights available on digital notebooks? Well, this is something that I've been struggling with for a couple of years, and what I landed on is Sublime Text. Now, the truth is, it doesn't have handwriting, it doesn't have image pasting, and so it misses a lot of the fundamental features that you need for an actual notebook. But you know what it does have? Markdown support, and what I found is, by embellishing my markdown skills, I have been able to revamp the AltaSpeed website. I've been able to do show notes faster. So it's a, a universally translatable skill. And so if you can learn to notate in that, it might be an option to work for. Of course, we'll keep an eye out of other open source notebook alternatives that might be out there and we'll continue to bring them to the show. If you have a suggestion, email them to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. See you then, everybody.